As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, November 23rd. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We'll get you caught up with all of the big news from the MLB hot stove. Um, you know, a lot of transactions on paper, not a lot of actual movement yet, but we'll get you caught up on that. We're going to dig into a question that uh, kind of openly asks, you know, why isn't Major League Baseball more like the NBA? The NBA has taken control of the sports calendar in the last couple of weeks with all the trades and big signings there. So we'll take a look at some interesting things as it pertains to why those things are so different. And then we're going to have our pitcher stats draft. It's kind of the sister episode to the hitter stats draft that we did last week. You know, how's it going for you on this Monday? It is good. It is good. I'm ready to eat. I got, I got, I prepped for eating uh, last night by doing um, uh, family recipe uh, lamb chops. It's actually pretty easy. Equal parts soy sauce, rosemary, uh, fresh rosemary, and Dijon mustard. And you just paint it on your lamb chops and broil them for 10 minutes. Boom. That sounds pretty easy. Yeah. Just get a whole sheet pan going. The Eno family uh, lamb chops made some of uh, Kenji Al Lopez's great um, crispy potatoes where you boil them in um, baking soda. So they get all kind of slushy and then you bake them real hot and they're really crunchy and I love those. So some some bacon Brussels sprouts. So I'm ready, man. I'm ready. I'm ready. I also filled out my my rankings, my side rankings for your, your piece coming up. Yeah, if you're into... Thanksgiving Day football stuff or just you know, side and pie rankings and some beer recommendations. I'll have a piece coming out. I think Tuesday morning will be the first time it's available, so be sure to check that out. Eno's a part of it. Britt's a part of it. Brandon Funston, Nando DeFino, perhaps some other friends will be checking in there as well. Uh, but let's start with the Major League Baseball news. <laughs> the Rule 5 protection deadline passed since we last spoke, and a lot of prospects were added to rosters. A few players were cast off rosters to make room. And in all of that, I felt like there was really only one sort of 
prominent player who became available. There were maybe a couple other interesting ones along the way, but the most interesting player is Hunter Renfro, DFA'd by the Rays. This is sort of their MO anyway. They didn't get the great season from Renfro before DFAing him, so maybe that's how this is a little bit different, but uh, he's in DFA limbo for now. I think he'll probably end up being a free agent. I can't imagine a team would actually trade for him right now, knowing that they'll have a shot at him for an open market signing in the next couple of days. But uh, as you look at the lack of movement so far, this isn't surprising, right? This is just what baseball does. It's a slower moving market than, say, the NBA, where things are extra weird because of when the season ended and when the next one's going to start. But I still think we've found that Major League Baseball has landed in this rut where the off-season activity takes too long to play out. And I'm not saying it all has to happen in three days. That would be completely ridiculous. But I still think there are these major structural problems with service time and just how the path to free agency works that really kind of steers teams into one simple, consistent philosophy. And that is ultimately why Hunter Renfro and Renato Nunez getting bumped off of 40-man rosters are the biggest headlines in baseball from the last 72 hours. And that's not really where you want to be in terms of drawing attention to the sport. Yeah, I have a few thoughts about it. Um, one is that, uh, you know, I just feel like some at some point someone did, and I feel like I even saw it on Fangraphs, did a, some research that suggested that people who sign late are better deals for the teams. <laughs> and so uh, there's like this sort of de facto stance, which is like, we're just going to wait as long as possible. We're going to wait the agents out and eventually they'll, they'll, you know, cave to our demands. So uh, that I think has just generally pushed signings later and later. Um, another thought that I have when it comes to like the NBA is just that the hard cap does something really weird where uh, it makes um, it makes everything more like a puzzle, you know, where you're just like, you know, you have these exceptions and these this and this that, but with the hard cap, you just have to fit everybody into this one number or there's a little bit of a range there. But, you you know, like, for example, um, right, you know, even beginning this before this uh, free agency began, there were only uh, two or three teams that had more than $10 million to spend on uh, of cap space. The Hawks, the Hornets, and I believe the Pistons. Not teams that are really close either. And the Knicks. Yes, right. So uh, the Hawks actually were the closest, so they took the most advantage and signed a bunch of, I think, pretty decent deals uh, that have made them a better team. Um, and they were first at the trough because people because there's this weird thing that happens with the um, with the cap is that like the players have a little bit of more power it seems sometimes to like you know land where they want to land. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're already under contract and stuff, because. Um, I mean, that's just how it, that's how it works in, in the NBA. I don't know that it's necessarily just the cap, but if everybody's capped at a certain number, then everyone's just a max player or super max player, right? So you can't just be like, you know, once you become a max player, you have to be able to fit on any team because the, every team has to be, you know, has to has to have max players. So uh, anyway, uh, the Hawks got their, got their pick of the litter, and now uh, it's the Hornets and the Knicks 
um, and the Pistons being like, who wants to take my money? (laughs) 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 Uh, But there is this weird thing where um, there's a deadline. There's like a a thing where they're not allowed to announce anything before a certain moment, right? And uh, you had things like Gordon Hayward opting out of a $30 million deal, and everyone thought, oh, my God, that's crazy. But it wasn't that crazy. You know why? Because he already had a deal in place. He just couldn't announce it, right? And then like a couple minutes after the, the moratorium is up, Oh, look, Gordon Hayward signs with, uh, was it the, was it Charlotte, I think? Yep. Um, and he's got, you know, four years and 30 million a, a, a year or whatever. Um, so, uh, I wonder if, uh, it would make a sense in a weird way, uh, for baseball to, uh, create a longer window where no, um, transactions were allowed. So, like, from, the end of the World Series to after Thanksgiving or something, to December 1st, right? No transactions allowed. Like, no signings allowed. That would at least create a sort of December 1st, you know, signing date where all the deals that would have happened in that last month, you know, come to fruition, right? Right. It's a weird thing. You'd think that you'd have to have some sort of deadline on the other end to push things together. The problem with baseball is you're allowed to sign someone in April or May or June, you know, if you want to. So if we push that deadline up, I don't know what happens there. Like what happens if your starter gets injured in spring training? You're not allowed to sign someone that's out there? That'd be weird. Yeah, because at a certain point you turn... If you add limited windows to make moves, you have what they have in soccer. You have transfer windows. You have multiple periods per year in which you can move players on and off the roster. And that's when your transactions happen. I don't think you need to go quite that far. I do think if you had a moratorium from the end of the World Series until the winter meetings, which would be you know, six to seven weeks, I think, is the time span that usually covers... You would have a flood of moves, even if it's not as significant as star signing extensions and all the big things we see in basketball kind of happening simultaneously. You would have the 30 or 40 small transactions that are, you know, one a day during that window all kind of rolling out on the first day that that's lifted. That would bring some sort of excitement. But I still think, you know, the underlying problem here comes down to teams having extended periods of control where you're in the minor leagues and then a long period of six years once you reach the big leagues before you reach free agency and it just keeps players in place for a very long time and then by the time you reach free agency most players are post-peak and they're just not that exciting i think if you shorten that up and the list keeps getting worse and worse i feel like every year (laughs) it gets every year gets worse but if you shorten up both of those windows a little bit if you say you got four years in the minor leagues before the 40-man deadline kicks in and teams got to make those decisions, right? Speed that up a little bit yeah. and then cut the major league time to free agency down from six to five or even six to four. Then you're going to have those more exciting waves of transactions as well because better players are going to be hitting the market at different points. I think it might be cool to like, just put a, a a date on the on after they after they signed, right? Just be like, you have a player for eight years after you've signed them. Just a, a max of, of eight, and maybe even along the way, you have to you got to boost something with the pay after four or five years too. You can't just 
hold them down in the minors for all that time. Oh, for like six years in the minors. Right. Can't yeah, do six yeah. and two in the Maybe minors. You can do and like pay four nothing. and four or something. Yeah. But um, yeah, something like that would uh, make the list better. If we had had a moratorium uh, until now, um, and today was a big signing day. At least you would find out, you know, Gossman, Stroman, Smiley, Ray, Guriel. Um, you know, that it wouldn't be like the NBA. But if you had it another two weeks, I feel like you might have another name or two on there. And then it starts to feel like, oh, some stuff is happening, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's not like the NBA had huge things happen. I mean, it was like Gordon Hayward, you know? <laughs> It's just the the sheer volume of moves, though. Uh, Even if it's old guys like Carmelo re-signing with the Blazers or Paul Millsap staying in Denver, right? Like You you have those kinds of things, and you have a Gordon Hayward on the move, and you have these trades of mid-level players. It all just adds up to be the kind of thing that gets people excited about the sport when ordinarily there'd be nothing to talk about. And I think... We got a really good email from Kyle. This is something, I mean, I was thinking about this throughout the weekend as I kept seeing NBA transactions. And he wanted to know, what do you make of the fact that NBA player salaries have skyrocketed across the board since 2015, especially at the top end, and MLB salaries have not capped up? There are more players making $30 million a season in the NBA than there are making $25 million a season in Major League Baseball, and there are more players making 25 plus in the NBA than there are making 20 plus in Major League Baseball. So at the top end of the player pool, especially, there's more money to be had in the NBA. Uh, Clearly, NBA rosters are smaller. That is a factor in this. But the thing that really kind of jumped out in the email is just looking at the percentage of players in the pool who make at least 15 million. Kyle had that in the email as well. 18% of the NBA's player pool, which is about 450 players, makes at least $15 million. 10% uh, the Major League Baseball player pool, which is 780 players, makes at least 15 million, right? So you're you're just in a better spot right now if you're in the NBA than if you're a Major League player. And I think, as we said, there are a number of reasons for this, but part of the popularity is being able to take over the headlines, to have your transactions, even your somewhat small transactions, kind of stand out as a big deal because they're part of this larger wave of activity. Yeah, and I think I think it's just a structure thing. I think it's what you're talking about. It's about the the state of free agency in baseball and the fact that um, if you have a structure where for the first three years of your career you uh, make the minimum, the NBA minimum, I mean the MLB minimum, and then uh, on top of that you have aging curves that suggest that players mostly enter the league as good as they're going to be. Um, and that there's no sort of up arrow anymore on aging curves. They kind of plateau uh, until they're 27 and then they drop off. Those two facts are just going to lead teams to incentivize to have as many ma- major league minimum players as they can. You know, that's that's just how it's going to work. If you if you put that in front of somebody, that's the math problem they'll figure out. And they'll be like, oh, these 500K guys, that's what we need. We need a lot of those. <laughs> so, um you know, I, I think uh, I, I think if I was the uh, if I was thinking about this from as a fan or um, as someone that worked on the players union, I think I would just argue for uh, doubling the minimum salary and some sort of restructuring or arbitration. And, and you know, I, 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 obviously the owners love arbitration and they want to keep it that way. So I don't know that we'll get a radical restructuring, but if, I would take uh, doubling the minimum salary and everyone is super two as big steps forward. Everyone is super two. That means that nobody, nobody has seven years of control. 
everyone's six, you know. Cutting out that extra year is big. Yeah, there's a lot of relievers where, you know, that's a, there's a big deal. There's a lot of people where they get that seventh year and it's a big deal. Um, and then doubling the minimum salary, what would happen then is, oh, now that guy costs a million dollars. Okay, so for a million dollars, I can have this untested reliever in my bullpen or I can go sign someone like Jeremy Jeffress. How much do you think he's going to cost? Like two million or something, right? So I could go get Jeremy Jeffress for two million or this untested guy for one million. Now you're starting to say, well, you know what? Maybe I'll take Jeremy Jeffress, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it would uh, help rebalance um, and and create some free agency opportunities. Also, if you double the minimum salary, that will have reverberations all the way through arbitration. You may have more non-tenders in the third year, but we're going to have a lot of those this year, I think, anyway. And um, that would also create more of a healthy free agency, hopefully. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we could put out there that would be beneficial to the players that would also be beneficial to the game from just the broader interest standpoint. But I do think getting those salaries up right away is going to move things along a little bit as well. Even if you can't completely shorten that timetable by a few years, that seventh year thing drives people crazy. They, they've got to find a way to get that out with the, Oh, let's hold them down 10 days. Like that's, that's a horrible horrible thing that needs to go away and that's why i like your i like the idea like if it is possible to kind of do something where you know you just own them for a certain amount of time and i hate the word own i don't i wish there was other ways to talk about this sort of stuff but you own the rights to them you they're in your in your on your team for a certain amount of time um that starts as soon as they enter your organization because then teams would be incentivized to get that player to the major leagues as soon as possible in most cases there might be, you're right to be worried about a reliever that they're like, you know, just going to keep in the minor leagues for six years. <laughs> uh, maybe you can attack that with some sort of pay structure or uh, maybe some sort of split where it's like eight years, but only four years in the minors or something, you know? What if you up the minor league basic pay, pay also? What if you yeah. knock that up to 100K a year or something? At that point, teams aren't just going to hold on to players forever. But yeah, if your AAA guys cost like 100000 a year, then... You know, after five years, they cost the same as a minimum guy for one year. You might be like, "Ugh, we're still, you know, like we, we should just bring him up. If it's a difference between 100 and 500 K and he can actually help us, you know. There's one other thought here. And thank you to Kyle for this email. This is a bit different, but how long do you think it should take to develop a big league player? I know everybody's a little bit different, but is a path of six years just leaving way too much wiggle room for teams anyway? Should... Should we reasonably expect a team to be able to turn a high school kid into a big league player in three years, four years? Like, how much time should that actually take? I mean, I, I think that different organizations have different answers because, you know, you see the Cardinals kind of have later debut ages and, and longer times in the minor leagues. And um, certain organizations seem to really want to, like, bring a guy up right around their peak ages and have them in the majors from, like, 24 to 28, 29, that sort of deal. Other teams are like, no, nah, man, this guy's ready to go. I don't care that he's 19, and they bring him up. Um, I personally think that the time that they need in the minor leagues is smaller now than it's been in the past because if you can just look at how uh, where pitching coaches are coming from, how college programs are being handled now, uh, what the average independent lab looks like, pitching lab or hitting lab looks like now, what the average independent you know hitting instructor looks like, 
I think that the instruction that players get before they get to the major leagues is at an all-time best. And I know that there's obviously idiots everywhere, but there's idiots in Major League Baseball too. So it's like, I'm sure there are people teaching people wrong things within Major League Baseball and without. But I think that just in terms of the average amount of, of good you can do with the player before he gets to baseball is at its best. I talked to Bryce Jarvis before he went into the draft this year, and he was talking about the spin efficiency on his pitches um, and how they mix, mix together and the mirroring and the banana peel and uh, talking about all the movements on his pitches and what he was trying to do with this and that and all the cues he'd run through. And I was like, dude, you sound like you've been coached. I, I could be talking to you as a major leaguer right now. Like I could be talking to you about what your pitching coaches are doing with you. That's what you sound like. And he hadn't even, he just pitched to Duke, you know? So uh, I would think that uh, we're going to see shorter and shorter times, especially for teams that are, um, that are competitive and, and, and need that player right away. You could, you know, I think we could have stuck Gavin Lux in, a, in any other lineup this year and just let him play, you know? So it's a, it's a complicated question because it has to do with the pay structure, you know, how competitive your team is, how crowded the major league roster is and all that. But if you're just asking me how long does it take to get a player to be good, I think a couple of years in the minors is enough. That's what I was drilling into, really, is just how long should it take for you to be a great player in high school and then become a viable big league player? So you're 18 when you finish high school, you're the best player in your area, you get into a major league org. When are you really ready to go in and be competitive against big league competition? My brain says it's more like three to four years. I think with an 18-year-old, it's probably three to four, and with college, it's probably two or so. You know what I mean? And I think we plus one or plus two the timetable for both of those groups because of cost and all those other factors. Right, right. But the the high school uh, player, you know, needs at least a year or two to like catch up uh, physically. I think so. There's a there's a portion of that you see you see it a lot with like. Have you seen Jason Dominguez? He's not normal. He just he doesn't <laughs> look like a teenager at all, right? So you're always going to have. But exceptions. he looks a lot bigger than he was. Is my point. It's like. You know, there's a there's a there's a year of sort of like better eating, better workout, better, you know, that took Jason Dominguez from that guy looks, you know, strong to whoo. I mean, <laughs> I think you could eat Miguel Sano at this point. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's it's fun to look at players like that, too, because you can dream on how fast the exceptions can get to the big leagues. He might be in the big leagues in two years. That might actually happen for Dominguez. And we're talking about like a 17-year-old signing, right? Yeah, and that's kind of an extreme, of course. Uh, one of the fastest paths to the big leagues for someone that age, but it does happen on occasion. I think that norm is, like you said, probably three to four years for a typical 18-year-old or 17-year-old coming out of high school, and then you're looking at probably one to two years for college players, especially coming out of more prominent programs where you have that advanced tech and that higher quality coaching as well. I feel like that that should erase most of the development time you would have needed coming out of high school. It should not take you almost as long if you went to college and played in a prominent program to then make your way to the upper levels of the minors and get the opportunity at the big league level. If I could put a cap on it, I would put a cap on like four years. I think four, four years for everybody should be enough. And... Um, Imagine being someone that's like drafted into an organization that's not forward thinking in terms of pitching and you think they're not coaching you right and you've been there for three years or stagnating as a pitcher. Like, do you really want to hang on for more? Like, it'd be better for you and maybe even the organization 
for you to be a minor league free agent earlier. You know, just so you can pick where you want to go, pick your who you're going to develop with, pick the, the organization that fits you best. So, yeah, I, I think even even like you know tapping it at four years would be would be a good way to make sure that you know something something split like an eight year thing. You have you for eight years, four years in the minors max. However, you use that. I totally agree with you. I think four by four would be a good new way to go. May need to it. have like an asterisk for college players, I guess. Maybe it's six and three for college players or something. Because they're older. I mean, if you had a college player for eight years, so three and three if you draft a player out of college, yeah. four and four if you draft them out of high school, yeah, or if you sign them as an international free agent, yeah, that's my that's my plan. Up to a certain age, if you sign. Please, uh, to please poke holes in and, and figure out what uh, what awful evil uh, free a- the the front offices would do with that plan. How they would how they would uh, use it to make baseball even worse. <laughs> they'll still yeah, they'll still find a way to break it. I'm sure, but at least it'll be a new problem for them to work on for right. a little while. And maybe maybe just maybe it'll kick up some more interest in transactions and speed up decision making throughout the off season as well. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get to our pitcher stats draft. You were kind enough to give me the first pick in the hitter stats draft last week. I will be very courteous and return the favor and give you the first pick. Everything, of course, is available. We're going to talk about why we like these stats and what we expect to learn and some of the shortcomings of these metrics as well. And since you are the king of pitching analysis with stats, I imagine your first pick would be one that most people are going to get behind. So I'm really curious of all the pitching stats out there, what goes one, one for you? Well, I kind of want to cheat. Well, you tried taking all carbs in the (laughs) sides draft. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's cheating, but my favorite is strikeout minus walk rate. Is that cheating? It's not cheating. It was at the top of my list. Okay. All right. You could, if you force me into choosing, I'm going to choose strikeout rate because walk rate actually... Uh, is not super sticky year to year uh, and takes a little bit longer to stabilize. But uh, strikeouts become more powerful when you subtract walks. So uh, strikeout minus walk rate is uh, the stickiest. uh, Well, I'll have other stickier (laughs) things, but it's one of the stickiest year to year stats. It stabilizes the fastest. It's been shown to be the best in season uh, projector. So it's better, like if you were looking at FIP or Sierra, it's, it beats that. K-BB beats FIP, beats Sierra, uh, beats, you know, every, most things that I've seen. And it's, it's, it's just disarmingly simple. And I think it gets at the things that, that pitchers control the most. 
Um, and it's a really easy way uh, to sort. And um, it isn't always the easiest to know what is good, uh, but a, a top 10% uh, thing, let me just do um, like 60 innings to get more in here. No, nope, that's not enough. Uh, 40 innings. Okay, 111 pitchers, so a top 10 strikeout minus walk rate is a top 10% one, uh, over 25%. If you're over 25%, you're elite. The guys last year that were elite were Shane Bieber, DeGrom, Bauer, Glasnow, Maeda, Lamette, Cole, Burns, Darvish, Gossman, Nola, Woodruff. Uh, so that uh, a big gainer was Zach Plesak, Um, although I would note that uh, a lot of that comes from a minuscule walk rate. Um, which may not may or may not be repeatable. So, uh, you know, if you want to poke holes in it, uh, Nate Eovaldi uh, is a uh, you know a year to year K minus BB champion. Um, Zach Eflin was up there, um, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know who would who would you consider? I mean, it's it's really pretty much devoid of misses. Jordan Montgomery was a top thirty guy, but. Uh, the missing thing is always uh, home runs, but home runs are super noisy. Um, and so you just kind of want to, um, uh, you know, avoid putting home runs too deep into whatever metric you're looking at for, for pitchers. I was trying to think of some some misses for K minus BB because it does just track really well overall. I think the type of pitcher that I fear it would miss on occasion is the high K high walk guy and 2017 Robbie Ray mm -hmm. is one of those guys. I mean, Danny Salazar back in 2017, you're getting 22, 23% K minus BB percentages from guys that bring considerable risk because of the walk rate being elevated. And the K minus BB number looks so good that if you were only looking at that, fortunately we obviously put it next to other things, then you could end up with a few surprisingly risky guys but generally nine times out of ten if not more you're coming away with a good or very good pitcher if the k minus bb percentage is good yeah it's it's it becomes less powerful the more sample you have so i think the biggest miss looking at 2019 guys going into 2020 is somebody like matt boyd uh who was 11th in baseball in k minus bb uh among pitchers with more than 80 innings in 90 innings in 2019 um, and the easy thing that you can spot is that he had the highest home run per nine rate out of anybody. But right below him is you Darvish, who you would call that a win, and he had a 1.66 home run per nine in 2019. Boyd had a 1.89. The problem is that we had a long track record with you Darvish, and so we could say that one's a bit of an outlier when it comes to home run rates. He's not really this home run prone guy. But with Matthew Boyd, we could start to drill down and be like, well, you know what? He's mostly a two-pitch guy. He's had the home run rate problem his whole career. This may not go away. You know, maybe he's not such a great uh, a, a great uh, choice here. Andrew Haney had very similar K-BB and home run rates to Matt Boyd, but I don't think he um, had the sort of two-pitch problem um, or uh, the sort of uh, track record with home run rates. So home run rates command, those are the things that can start to chip away at the effectiveness of KBB. But if you're talking about, you know, you're three weeks into the season and you sort by KBB, there's very few things that are going to help you as much as, as that. Yeah, I just flipped that leaderboard upside down from 2019 
set the minimum to 100 innings, so we're looking at starters. I mean, you would have missed on Sandy Alcantara and Zach Plesak, but most of the pitchers you're seeing at the bottom of that leaderboard and that laggard section, (laughs) they're guys you want nothing to do with, right? So just as you can occasionally step into the high K, high walk, Robbie Ray, Danny Salazar type that I described at the other end, you'll occasionally step into a good pitcher who either doesn't strike guys out yet or has a walk rate problem that they are able to fix. Again, you're nine times out of 10, you're right to avoid the guys on the bottom of this list. Yeah, I think Alcantara is just a, a big pitch mix change guy, and I'm I'm sure I'll have something uh, on this list that'll that'll uh, approach uh, being able to sort of figure out that problem in the future. All right, well I'll go ahead and make my first pick. I'm actually going to go with CSW called strikes and whiffs divided by total pitches. It's the Alex Fast metric we've started talking about on the show a bit more in the last couple of months. Uh, he sums it up perfectly. There's a great intro article about the metric from two years ago now over at Pitcher List. And right at the top, more predictive than swinging strike percentage, more descriptive than whip percentage. It's a good mix of things you're looking at here. You'll see in that piece how it tracks with ERA, how it tracks with K percentage, how it tracks with an ERA indicator like Sierra. Just a lot of good indicators all rolled into one. And that's the thing about pitching stats compared to hitting stats. I feel like you can you find more Frankensteins when it comes to pitching metrics that can tell you a little bit more. It just seems like they're a little further along in terms of evolution. If you look at the actual breakdown from the shortened season in 2020, I think numbers above 30 are generally what you're looking for. You get into the low to mid-30 range. That's where your leaders are going to be. Like Jacob deGrom had a 34.6 CSW in the shortened season. You know, Bieber's up there at 33.8. Darvish, 33.7. Uh, Denelson Lamette, 33.4. Aaron Nola, Kenta Maeda above 32. So it's good at finding guys that can get whiffs and called strikes, both good skills, right? You want guys to swing and miss, you know, when they're going to take a swing and you want to be able to freeze guys too with pitches that they they don't think are going to be strikes or pitches they don't think they can hit. And I just think this is a good overall individual skill metric for pitchers that uh, Alex did a great job putting together. I, I think this is one that, I wish I'd come up with it because if I had been ahead of the curve on it, I probably would have been doing a better job finding undervalued pitchers uh, had I come up with this a few years ago. Yeah, my, one of my only problems with it is do you have a, a good place to to track it? Is there a good leaderboard? I, I have like a, a savant search uh, that I do where um, I just add called strikes to swing strikes in the pitch result field um, and uh, and sort by pitch percentage. Uh, then you can play around with the number of results uh, to try and, and toggle the reliever, uh, the minimum number of results to toggle reliever starter. But uh, with 200 as the minimum results, Shane Bieber was number one, right? Is that 35.7? Is that track with what you've got? Uh, I think I've got them a little different, but I thought I used the same method you did where I used the Savant search to get it because that, that is the one drawback right now. I don't think there's an easily accessible leaderboard. At least it's not available you know, at Fangraphs, not available on the Savant leaderboards yet. I bet that's going to change, though. I wouldn't be surprised if when we get to the start of 2021, we'll see it. You see it in Savant in certain places. So it's it's in there, and they, they may they may uh, they may add it to a leaderboard somewhere. I could see it being on a couple different leaderboards. I couldn't find it. But uh, elite in this case would be, I think, uh, over 33%, maybe over 32%. Does that track with what you've got? 
Yeah, that does. Okay. Um, so, you know, 33% is elite. Um, I think I've, I've read before that the average is under 30%, just under 30%. Um, and, um, you know, there's some interesting names at the top here, for, perhaps for next year. Tajay Antone uh, was also one of the biggest spin rate increasers in baseball um, and a pitch mix change guy. Um, and, uh, maybe he will be more interesting next year if Trevor Bauer doesn't sign there. Um, so I think, uh, to Jay Antone is definitely somebody to, uh, keep on your, on your, on your, you know, just on your, on your name board. I've got a name board. <laughs> I had one too. I should have, I it's think like I took Pinterest, a picture of it last year. Pinterest with pitcher names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you definitely find some guys a little further down in the ranks who surprise Dylan Bundy comes up really high from the shortened season in 2020. Frankie Montas, despite having a bad season, is right there tied with Kenta Maeda and, and, and CSW. Joe Musgrove, um, a favorite of a lot of people in the fantasy community, comes in pretty high. He's at like 33 in change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drew Smiley. At 34, Caleb Smith at 33. You see, you kind of find value options up and down the rankings. Uh, Brady Singer, I believe. I think I mentioned him when we talked about him a week or so ago. 32.3 CSW. And that's really high for a guy outside the top 75 among starters in my ranks. So you, you can find guys all over that do this well. Uh, and again, I just think it's a, it's a measure of dominance. It's giving me enough information that I don't always have in front of me if i'm only looking at one or two numbers the only drawback as we said is having difficulty tracking it down uh, the savant custom search is the best way to get that information yeah it's actually uh, a little bit of brilliance because there was a, a piece a while back from matt swartz that uh, on baseball prospectus that pointed out that um called strikes like called strikes and swinging strikes impart the same amount of information on strikeout rates. And, and so the, he was basically intimating that like the one is not superior to the other between call strikes and swing strikes. I I've since seen a little bit of research that in a smaller sample, swinging strikes can stabilize faster. So I think swing strikes stabilize faster. That probably has to do with not having to, you know, use the umpire. The umpire is not a variable. The catcher and the framing is not a variable. Swinging strikes are a little bit more mono mono type of type of situation. Um, but, uh, by using call strikes plus whiffs, you're throwing those two things together, um, and you're focusing on the things that create strikeouts. So in a way you're, you're pre strikeouting and strikeout rate is one of the best stats. We've already established that. And I basically chose strikeout rate by choosing strikeout minus walk rate. Um, and then, uh, sometimes you want to go move faster and find people where, they're doing something under the hood that doesn't work with their strikeout rate might predict a better strikeout rate in the future. And I think that's called strikes versus whiffs. And with my next pick, I'm going to go even deeper um, because sometimes you only have one or two games that you're looking at or a scouting report. And in those situations, I think velocity, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just straight MPH uh, is, uh, is an important number. And um, I think it's really huge for DFS. Uh, Rob Arthur showed that uh, there is a bit of a hot hand when it comes to pitching, that pitchers that were up in velocity outperformed their projections in the next games. So if you're just uh, tracking, uh, you know, small changes in, in fastball velocity, you might spot some really good pitchers to take in DFS. 
you might take you might spot some pitchers to uh, trade for or pick up. Drew Smiley, um, you know, was a, a decent pickup in 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 deeper leagues last year uh, because uh, his velocity was up to an, at two point eight miles per hour. It's a decent way to see how you know, major league uh, front offices work this way. The the top I have a piece out about uh, a few free agent pitchers, four free agent pitchers that that caught my mind my eye, and one of them is Matt Shoemaker, um, and uh, he was up two point eight ticks. Um, his fastball was up, velocity was up two point eight ticks in September compared to the season before. Um, here are the other guys that were that were below him. He's number one in in fastball plus velocity in September. Here are the other guys that were on that list. Smiley, 2.7, signed. Robbie Ray, up 1.4, signed. Kevin Gossman, up 1.1, signed. So I think you're going to see mostly guys on the plus. And then today, there's rumors that Michael Waka is supposedly in demand. He was up. He's on this up one plus uh, list. So changes in fastball velocity, fastball velocity. Fastball velocity is also like maximum uh, exit velocity, where it describes to you how good the player can be. Uh, you have to be able to touch uh, 97 plus to get drafted in the first three rounds these days. It's like max exit velocity. If you can't touch 97, then we can't get you to sit 94. And right now, average league velocity is around 93. And then just generally, velocity is good. We know that it's good. Every pitch does better when it has more velocity. In the same locations, the same movement, the pitch does better if it has velocity. So if you're looking at uh, big velocity leaders in 2019 going into 2020, uh, Syndergaard, I guess that's a miss, but that's injury. That's a different thing. Cole, DeGrom, Montas, maybe a miss, but Wheeler, Bueller, Woodruff, Castillo, Gray, I guess that's a miss, but that's you know Colorado. And then here, Sandy Alcantara. Hmm. We have a guy who just changed his pitching mix, has great fastball velocity, and didn't do well in K-BB. Let's let's take a, a deeper look. Otherwise, Snell, Paxton, you know that was a miss from injury. Clevenger, Scherzer. It's a good it's a good one number uh, thing to look at fastball velocity. It's a good leaderboard that you just threw out there too, right? I mean, Velo gives you a lot more margin for error. That's why we talk a lot about aging starting pitchers when they start to lose Velo. How good are the secondaries? How good is the command? Right, because your margin for error shrinks as your Velo drops and being able to locate effectively or being able to mix and match three or four pitches goes a, a really long way toward kind of staving off the inevitable decline that comes from that lost velocity. I think my next pick kind of falls in exactly with the Sandy Alcantara example, and it's something that, frankly, I wouldn't have if it weren't for you putting this out there. Command plus. like That's the thing I want to see. It's like, okay, so... Why doesn't he strike more guys out? Does he have poor command? In this case, he's got average command. So that's not a red flag. It's not you know great to see just an average number there, but it's not a bad thing, right? We talked about guys in the 80s being particularly problematic, the dreaded Josh James territory. You don't want to be there. Uh, but even there are good pitchers like Glass now and Lamette who are in the, the mid-80 range in command plus. At the other end, of course, you have a few guys who are great in Command Plus who didn't get great results. Uh, Chris Paddock is the trouble spot in that direction. Uh, it would look at you know Michael Pineda maybe as a guy that I have probably overrated because of how good the Command Plus was in 2020 and how good the Command's been in the past. But 
all in all, I think this is one of those uh, new sort of metrics that it gives you a better sense of something you used to have to just see with your eyes. You can look at a number now and have a better feel for whether or not the pitcher locates where he wants to locate instead of having to watch every single pitcher for multiple starts to really build your own scouting report. You that's at what least, they're doing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they do like someone's <laughs> doing that for you. That's extremely valuable because there's only so much time in the day. Yeah, I was talking to a team analyst that said that, you know, when he was trying to develop his stuff metric and he was working on, um, you know, stuff uh, numbers that were based on velocity and movement of pitches and how how well a, a player would do uh, just based on his on his movement and velocity. He found that almost every outlier that was unexplainable by stuff was explained by command plus like uh he contacted me and asked for command plus numbers so he could integrate that into his stuff metric to get a better way uh to build uh like a pitcher evaluation model and uh so i I believe that it is something that uh teams are doing uh the teams value um i i know that it it sounds a little bit janky to some uh to be honest to because what you're trying to do is get in the, in the pitcher's head. And you're trying to anticipate using scouting reports of the pitcher, scouting reports of the hitter. Sometimes you look at the catcher's target, but not always because catchers do weird things with their gloves. Um, and you kind of look at the situation and you, you're you guessing where the pitcher wants to go. And so um, I can see how people would say it's falsely precise or uh, it's just impossible to get in the pitcher's head. I, I, I understand that, but I think it's a worthwhile um, thing to to ask, a worthwhile question to ask, and I think it's a uh, a very different way of of doing it uh, that captures some of this. I mean, if you look at it, a lot of the misses, quote unquote misses. I think Pineda uh, counts as this. Pineda, Tommy Malone is up there, um, and uh, you know maybe Alec Mills. You might call those or Lejay Newsom. Those are guys that are misses. H- however, I think that they actually do very well given their stuff. <laughs> right they get more mileage out of below average stuff i mean alex mills the is out there throwing 80 poo dude you know what i mean so like uh i i kind of think that michael pineda would be a reliever out of baseball if he didn't have excellent command uh look at zach davies who was number one in command plus like he he's exactly what i'm talking about like i think if he didn't have that command he wouldn't be in baseball it's really kind of interesting to me because Davies in Pineda in terms of their physical builds are probably the most <laughs> polar opposite pitchers in the league. And they're one and two on the command plus leaderboard. It's really surprising to see that. Their underlying numbers in the shortened season actually look pretty similar in terms of strikeout rate and walk rate. Yeah, no, it's helpful too to 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 quantify something like this so that you don't have any biases, right? You don't have like a you know, oh, Michael Pineda just throws real hard and, you know, you know, or whatever it is. You don't have, you don't come to it with any biases and, 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 you know, look at Zach Davis and be like, oh, he must be a command guy. Well, it turns out that he is, but like, you know, just not only because he's the tiny dude, (laughs) (laughs) you know, not only because he's got Greg Maddox build or whatever. Um, But, you know, I I think it's a helpful thing. Um, I think that it mostly is helping me, uh, realize how risky some guys can be um and you talk about that mid-80s shelf um that is where i start to just 
tap out on people. So um, I just wanted to name some names that uh, people are excited about that are sub 90. 90 showed up in my research as being a moment where uh, you're much more likely to be a reliever. And I'm picking out the starters here, but it's like reliever, 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 starter, reliever, reliever. You know what I'm saying? So it's like Mm -hmm. reliever. It's Kyle Wright, reliever, 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 Tony Gonsolin, reliever, 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 Corbin Burns, reliever, Tarek Skubal, reliever, reliever. Oh, that guy's in uh, Japan, I think. Reliever, reliever, James Karinchak, reliever, 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 reliever. Um, I don't care about as much relievers, I'll be honest. I think it's just part of why relievers are kind of uh, crazy year to year. I just generally I just generally fade relievers. <laughs> uh, Tyler Glass now, 87. Josh James, 86. Luis Patino, 86. Denilson Lamette, 86. Um, Dylan Cease, 85. It's starting to get really dicey here. It's all relievers. Jordan Yamamoto, 83. I don't, I'm not betting on much from that. Um, I, I can't even see a starter anymore. You say Kikuchi's in there with a 77. Nate Pearson with an 81. I think the, the question people are going to have, and this is one where I, I would absolutely defer to you, with someone like Pearson or Patino, we're talking about fewer than 20 innings. Is that still such a small number of innings you'd look at it and say, I'm concerned, but since these guys are relatively cheap in drafts, I mean, Patino might be outside the top 400 in ADP. I'll take this lottery ticket with poor command and a limited sample, but I'm less likely to go after Corbin Burns with an ADP in the top 70 overall. Yeah. There's still ways to justify taking a chance on someone with well below average command. I think it's a little bit more about like, do you remember where Zach Gallon was going? Um, going into 2020, you know, and you're like, oh, do I have the do I have the entire uh, package here? Is this worth spending money on? And I think when you see the great command thing and good stuff and good fastball velocity and good strikeout minus walk rate, then you can say, hey, everything's on board here. You know, there's nothing for me to worry about. Um, but when you're, you know, when you're picking where Pearson goes, you know, there's a lot of he could take it a step forward. He could he could he could throw a, a tick slower next year and and be better at placing it. So um, and, and he would still be throwing 96 or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that there. Uh, yeah, there's definitely always a relationship between where a guy is. Also, I wouldn't freak out too much um, if a guy has a, a command plus between 95 and 105. I pretty much just lump all those guys together as having average command. Um, it's a little bit more uh, impressive when someone gets past 115 on the top end or 85 on the bottom end. That's when I really uh, take notice. And so, you know, I think even with Patino, it's like uh, like Glass now. Glass now is an 87. Um, he has two uh, two pitches. And he's going to be a very expensive starter next year. I think I may not have that many that many shares. I just see that number, and it gives me the gives me goosebumps in a bad way. And that's even before you think about injury risk, which we've talked a lot about too. That's elevated for Glassnow. Glassnow and Lamette are like the two that I worry about the most. Yeah, it's reflected in the rankings for me. Definitely two guys that I'm not sure about. And I think with someone like Patino. A reason I'd be more inclined to take that chance is we're looking at a guy that has three pitches, right? It's mm-hmm. Fastball, changeup, slider. It's not two needs a third. It's has three, hasn't commanded them well so far, but 
there was a point not that long ago, I think I recall you saying if you had your choice between Patino and Gore, you actually preferred Patino, right? Yeah, well, that's been borne out by some sort of weird velocity uh, thing going on with Gore. Nobody knows where he's what he's sitting. I, I would, if anybody here has, has seen a velocity number on Gore, please, please let me know. <laughs> um, but uh, Patino, uh, it's also interesting because you see Patino, like my looks at Patino, um, a lot of them were like at showcases, like at like All Star games and stuff like that where uh, I'm just like, wow, dude is like throwing 100 with these three awesome pitches. And then, you know, more extended looks, you might say, well, he's having a hard time placing it. He runs up big pitch counts. You know, he's out of the game early. Um, All things that can either uh, lead to them saying, hey, you know what? You can't control your changeup. Let's turn you into a closer and you're our next closer um, just because you can't really control that changeup. that's a that's one way that people take steps forward or like with Tyler Chatwood. Hey, let's throw his cutter because you can control it better than you control, you know, whatever the curveball or the changeup. Uh, so there are, there can be ways to to improve your uh, command plus by improving your pitch mix, by changing your pitch mix, throwing a pitch that you can control more often than another pitch that you can't control. So there are there are ways to change your your, your command plus. And I would never say that it's, you know, set in stone, the Patino. Uh, has reliever level command, but it is a reason to uh, be maybe a little bit more worried about a young pitcher. Um, but like you know, Tyler Molly, for example, uh, still has that elite um, command plus and ha- always has. But this year he developed a really good slider that looks like an out pitch. Now you've got a real out pitch, you've got average velocity, and you've got elite command. That's why Tyler Molly's on my on my on my name board. There's also. Uh an element of pairing this with something like CSW too, where I'm looking and saying, okay, I got green ink and command plus, and I've got green ink with called strikes and whiffs. And that's exactly what describes Tyler Molly. Mm-hmm. There's your guy, your mid and late round pitching target. If he ticks both of those boxes to me, that's a very good target, a 30.9% called strikes and whiffs and a 115 command plus for Molly uh, gravy on top of that one, of course. It's a Reds organization that's getting a lot out of its pitching staff right now, too. You could do a, a simple pairing too with velocity and command plus. If you do that, a lot of these, uh, if you say like who has ninety four plus velocity, uh, then a lot of these iffy names drop out. And if you if you do that filter and look at elite command plus plus uh, above average velocity, you get Gallon, Nola, um, uh, Molly. Uh, Ryu, no, not anymore. Ryu, Degrom, um, Gossman. Uh, let's see who else does the velocity. Gets better the velocity. Barrio still. Woodruff, Wheeler, Luis Castillo, uh, Mike Myers possibly the the closer for the Angels next year. Pablo Lopez, Max Scherzer, so uh, Shane Bieber. So it's a good. It's a. It, I think that is a. You know. Or your your stuff metric, you know, whatever stuff metric you've got, or, or if you just want to base on velocity, if you could, that's 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 been my, my holy grail has always been like, let's combine command and stuff and and look under the hood. Yeah, I think it's a good approach, and it, again, it gives us a little more insight into something that's always been harder to quantify until recently, and I think it just pairs so well with other things that we're often looking at. 
If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Reddick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is meme mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Uh, Let's go ahead and have you make your third and final pick here. Obviously, plenty more stats you could use, but if you only had one more tool to put in the bag, what would it be? This is a weird one. Um, There's a lot of good research out right now uh, that people are looking at how um how a pitcher can um control balls in play like control exit velocity or balls in play like when you look at k minus bb what you're saying is i'm going to just look at strikeouts and walks and balls in play are just all noise uh that's been sort of what you got from a defense independent pitching standpoint that's um you know a a really cool uh metric that's a really good metric that was uh, developed by boris mccracken uh, back in the day, and um, it, it's it's a solid way to think about things. Uh, however, I think we're we're starting to shave away at what pitchers can control, and just from some great work from Alex Chamberlain and Connor, uh, I think Connor did I bla- did I kill your name last time, Connor Kirkon Kirkon K U R C O N. You should follow him. He's good. Uh, the the two of those guys have been looking re- into like what a pitcher can control and. Uh, it, it kind of falls in line with what I've always thought, which is uh, they can control launch angle by where they throw in the zone and they can th- control exit velocity by where they throw in the zone. Um, it's just that uh, controlling exit velocity is really hard because um, that has to do with the pit- the hitters uh, good zones and it has to do, you have to come in the strike zone and the exit velocity is better in the strike zone than out. But controlling launch angle is just, do you throw high in the zone or do you throw low in the zone? Um, and so a lot of these fancier metrics that are trying to get at how much the pitcher can command i'm not sure how good they are year to year and how predictive they are uh and i haven't bought into any of them that hardcore but it has helped me appreciate a really old school metric that i want to pick here can you guess oh after that preamble is it, is it ISO against? No, but you're getting there. Ground ball rates. Ground ball rate. Okay. <laughs> I'm surprised, um, but but you want to know a lot about what happens when this guy does get hit. 
and that does tell you quite a bit. And I want to have fewer homers in the in the time of homers. I want to have fewer homers. Um, and so I did a, a, a I just opened up my tableau and did like a an analysis of ground ball rate and home run rate by pitcher uh, in the last ten years. And uh, ground ball rate predicts about twenty one percent of your home run rate. So it's actually not as strong as you might expect. However, if you only look at pitchers with a ground ball rate above 50%, um, that changes. It's really obvious when you're looking at uh, uh, the map. But I'm going to do a filter reel here real quick. I'm only looking at ground ball rates above 50%, and I want to know the relationship between these two metrics now. It's super strong, um, and it describes now, oh, about the same. That's weird, because there's less, there's fewer dots. But anyway, it's definitely, if you look at the graph, it's more obvious. Over 50% is when things become meaningful. And this is also backed up by research uh, on Sierra and some other uh, metrics. Um, you want over 50%. If it's like 40 to 45% or something, you're not really getting a lot of information from that. But over 50%, uh, you get an actual reduction in home run rates. That's Randy Dobnak, Framber Valdez, Valdez, Lance McCullers, Adrian Hauser, Luis Castillo, Sixto Sanchez, uh, Brett Anderson, Dakota Hudson, uh, Zach Wheeler. Always has really low home run rates, especially this year. Uh, Patrick Sandoval, interestingly. Uh, Dustin May, that's going to be part of his brilliance. I think he will start to suppress home runs. Um, Brady Singer uh, could could get out of his sort of left. He has a... a a fastball slider mix, but if he's going to get 53% ground balls, maybe he won't give up a ton of homers to lefties. Uh, Max Freed, Clayton Kershaw, Brad Keller. There's a bit of a type in Kansas City, it looks like. Dallas Keuchel always seems to be okay, even though nobody wants to spend any money on him. Uh, <laughs> Ian Anderson, Pablo Lopez. It's a pretty good list, man. It's a it's a good list of where I think the floor is higher than people uh, people realize. Um, you keep that home run rate over 50%, you're likely going to have, uh, I mean, that grand ball rate under over 50%, you're going to have home run rates that are closer to, to one than like, you know, three or whatever. <laughs> I was trying to come up with something that looked at batted balls that wasn't old school like ground ball rate that definitely incorporated some of the exit velocity things that we care about for hitters. And I was trying to decide if I actually want barrels per plate appearance allowed as something like that tells me a lot about the picture. And I wonder how different it would be than the ground ball rate leaderboard, because I'm looking at the 2019 barrels per plate appearance leaderboard over at Savant. And I set it up to be 200 and I guess 200 batted ball events to get most of the relievers out. The leaders there in a good way, uh, Marcus Walden reliever, Tyler Chatwood. That's kind of interesting. Michael Lorenzen, reliever, Frankie Montas, Brandon Woodruff, Blake Snell, Julio Urias, Marcus Stroman, Charlie Morton, Max Freed, Luis Perdomo. There's a there's a surprise. He gets a lot of ground balls, though, right? Uh, Wade Miley, Jacob deGrom, Luis Castillo, Garrett Cole, right? So there, there are the aces we're accustomed to. A 2019 surprise, Adrian Hauser, Framber Valdez, Francisco Liriano, who was a reliever at the time, Noah Syndergaard, Chris Bassett, who I think we've seen is a little bit underrated. Mike Clevenger, Hinjin Ryu, Walker Bueller, Kenta Maeda rounding out the top 25. I mean, that's a pretty good group overall. A few 
strange pitchers mixed in there. I mean, I, yeah, if you look only at this, you might trick yourself into drafting Wade Miley, but fortunately, you don't have to use barrels per plate appearance as a standalone metric for evaluating pitchers. Yeah, uh, I just, I don't know. Uh, I get I get really nervous about uh, balls and play stats for pitchers. <laughs> like, I, I was raised in dips, you know, and I just, <laughs> it, I... I see, you know, so there's a there's a cool piece by Alexander Chase on Pitcher List today, um, and he's he's making the argument for a, a stat called hard hit per nine, um, and it's basically how many hard hits per nine innings a pitcher would give up, um, and he's it's better than their hard hit. It's more useful as a stat than their hard hit percentage uh, for reasons that he uh, doesn't quite explain. I don't think, but uh, he shows anyway by showing in the numbers. So. It looks like one of the best ones, uh, but a lot of times it still gets outperformed by strikeout minus walks. If you if you look carefully at the uh, at the stats, um, and and even in his summation at the end, I was kind of like, well, strikeout minus walks feel pretty powerful on this list, you know. <laughs> uh, but he does make a, a good uh, he does make a good argument for hard hit per nine. I would recommend reading it. Uh, the barrels do okay with describing this year's uh, ERA, but uh, barrels allowed are pretty bad at describing next year's ERA. There's your major limitation. Yeah, I wonder if just hard hit on a per swing basis would be better. I'm looking at that leaderboard. Urias, DeGrom, Snell, Verlander, Cole, Woodruff, Flaherty, Maeda. Fewer blips on that list. Erod's in there at 10 from 2019. Scherzer, Clevenger, Paddock, Giolito, Castillo, Morton, Again, yeah. filtering out a couple of relievers. Like, that's pretty good. And it is actually uh, better than barrels, uh, than any of the barrel stats. A hard hit per TBF, that's a little bit closer to uh, hard hit per swing. Um, you know, that, that, that performs better than any of the barrel stats uh, when predicting season two ERA. But the two best stat, I mean, the best stat for uh, predicting season two ERA is strikeout rate. So, <laughs> and the stickiest stat year to year is strikeout rate. Right? Um, <laughs> and even hard hit per nine, which he's arguing for, is pretty good, but it's less sticky than walk rate um, year over year. So, uh, there's we're there's some work out there. It's getting better, um, and we we can define it better now that we have the Statcast numbers. Uh, but I I prefer if there's anything that I haven't said today in the draft, I would say like something like vertical movement. Um, on the fastball and the curveball or the breaking balls, that's something I look at a lot. It has it's basically a stuff variant. Um, I'm I'm looking for ways to predict strikeout rate because strikeout rate is the best thing. Is basically what, I, what is how I approach it. When it comes to suppressing, the only nod I'll give is sort of a look for um, ground ball rates and just a, the reason I like ground ball rate is it gives you an idea of who's throwing low in the zone, who might avoid homers in the future. Yeah, I think that's solid reasoning for ground ball rate. If I was going to use one of those batted ball numbers instead, my lean would be the hard hit on percentage of swings. So you can get that from the baseball savant leaderboard. I feel like that's just got a slightly more accurate feel to like who's legitimately keeping guys from squaring them up the most. Like That's what I'm looking for there, but... I think ground ball rate, as you said, kind of gets you to a very similar place and, and easier I think, to get at. And you, know, you, the, you understand the direct benefits of it really easily. The skill that I think is being measured is command. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Probably. All of that to get back to the one number, which again, didn't we didn't used to have that. That's why ground right. ball rate was so important 10 years ago, but still has quite a bit of value today. Uh, before we go, how about a beer of the week in honor of Thanksgiving? You know, what do you got uh, lined up for Thursday? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What have I got? What do I got? I've got a, a box coming to me from North Dakota slash Minnesota. I haven't opened it up yet, so I don't know exactly what's in there. I got a box coming to me from uh, from Baltimore with some Dan's Jams in it. Um, and I've been, it's, it's the Skittles Sour. Um, and he's sending me a Skittles Sour. And he's recommended that I actually throw some tequila in it and enjoy my Jamarita. Huh. So I might try that because I've already tried putting Coca-Cola in my supplication and people <laughs> were yelling at me for that. I'm a crazy person. I'm willing to just mix and match. They're, they, you know, they gave us these things so we can have fun with them. I like the idea of trying something different with the uh, Thanksgiving Day beers, especially. Man, actual tequila in beer. That's. <laughs> whew, I don't know if I'm going quite that far. I mean, I was thinking about different adjuncts and some diff- different kinds of flavors. I mean, I, I was thinking more like blackberry sours because those would go oh, well yeah. with turkey, right? And, and we always talk about. One, to have some stuff that other people you might be sharing that meal with would be willing to drink. It does kind of change things. Having smaller Thanksgiving this year, you can't bring as much stuff to share. So it, instead of bringing those nice bombers that come out a couple times a year, it is more kind of choosing my spots. I think the Southern Grist beers I've been getting from Nashville are excellent. Like mm. I have been blown away at the different things they try. The last one I just tried is a sour called Batita which I believe is just based on the Brazilian cocktail. So you've got some lime and orange peel and a little bit of like a coconut flavor. Uh, they also get some, um, they have a little bit of lactose in there mm. for, for mouthfeel purposes. Uh, so I would highly recommend that. It's in the, the wild ale family with lots of nice adjuncts in it. Uh, very tropical and uh, makes you feel like you're on vacation, even if you're not. Uh, but the beer I tried from there before that was another... It's another sour. It was almost like a deep purple color. And it was, frankly, one of the most complex, fruity, sour beers I've ever had. Wow, Southern Grist, huh? Every time I see Southern Grist at my local spot now, I'm going to pick some up. I'm going to keep trying stuff until I have one I don't like. They've been crushing it. And, I mean, I think the generic advice is drink as locally as you can at this time because, you know, you want to support the the most local breweries, but if you're not supporting the neighborhood brewery around the corner, support the neighborhood brewery in someone else's neighborhood. And I think that's <laughs> in line with, you know, Southern Grist and some of the other places too. I think that's an East Nashville special. One of my favorite places to go actually lately has been Nashville. And by lately, I mean like the last couple of years. I have not been obviously mm-hmm. since the pandemic started. So if you see Southern Grist, you want that. If you see something a little heavier that you want, I, I would say like, Omegong Three Philosophers is always a go-to for me on special occasions. You can get it pretty much anywhere. Uh, it's a quad that doesn't taste like bananas. I know you know you pretty much hate bananas across the board. Oh, I dropped I dropped some some real uh, nasty words about banana cream pie on the on your uh, on your rankings. 
You really did. And, uh, <laughs> can't wait to see the banana enthusiast uh, start fighting back in the comments <laughs> yeah. on that one. Britt no, took a shot at lemons in that piece, too. I, I just had a flash to my dad coming over and telling me that all my beers are too sweet. So I think I'll also have some Saison DuPont on 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 uh, on file for him. Hopefully he, he, he can handle that. Also, the food is so, yeah, the food is so thick, you know, like, I don't think I'm really going to break out of, maybe afterwards when we're all half asleep, I'll have a stout, but, you know, during the meal, Saison DuPont might be the thing. Yeah, I think the stouts are for after 6 p.m. on a day like Thanksgiving. There's a ton for us to be thankful for. Among those things, you, our listeners, we're very thankful that you've been with us throughout the last year plus. If you have already supported The Athletic with a subscription, we really appreciate that. If you're looking to get in. You can get in for a dollar a week at theathletic.com slash rates in barrels. You can follow Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Benriper. We are off for the next few days. Have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. We are back with you next Monday. Thanks for listening.